In 2 Timothy, here we go. Uh, got some quite a bit of introduction here to do just as, the, as we start out a new book of the Bible. Um, we're going to learn a lot, I think, in this season. Um, but the overarching message of 1 and 2 Timothy is essentially Jesus has been faithful to us, and so here's how the church should be faithful to him. Okay, so that's why we're calling this thing Faithful Savior, Faithful Church. Um, First and Second Timothy really are fundamentally about how the church stays faithful to Jesus in the midst of a uh, really crazy world. Like the world that Timothy lived in was crazy, just like ours is. Um, and so there's all kinds of instruction in, in particularly First Timothy about how the church should function, how the church should operate, what the church should look like, um, in, and, uh, and how we should move in that direction to be more faithful to Jesus uh, as a congregation, as a local church. And so that's really the, the heart of this. Um, and, but here's what I want to say. Uh, I want to just do a little bit of a just a quick overview on something that I've said before many times, but we need to touch on it again. As we walk through First and Second Timothy, we are going to see, like we do with every single book of the New Testament, there are problems in this church that Paul is trying to address. Okay, Every letter Paul writes, maybe Philippians is an exception to that, but I think you can even see in Philippians some, some corrections. Uh, but generally speaking, Paul has written every letter, whether it's to the local church of Thessalonians or to the Colossians or to the Ephesians, every letter has something in it that, that this church needs to grow in and change in. And there were problems in these churches. And Timothy is, the, he's the recipient of this letter, but Timothy is leading a church in the city of Ephesus. We're going to see that in the first uh, few verses here. And so even though this was written to a guy named Timothy, it is really written to the church. It's written to a local church that has all kinds of problems. So why do I say that? And why is that in any way good news? Well, I think it's important that we understand this. No church is perfect. All right. No church is perfect. There are no perfect churches. There are no churches that have no problems. And if you're looking for that, you are going to be looking till the day you die and you're just going to be disappointed, right? That's just the reality. We have to recognize every church, our church, all churches have problems. There are no perfect churches. There are no perfect Christians. And because Christians make up the local church, guess what? That just, that just causes problems. It causes issues. And Paul is writing these letters all of his letters, not to discourage us in that, but to say, hey, there's room to grow. Here's some areas that need to be dealt with. Let's talk through how the gospel is the answer to that, right? That's why Paul writes these letters to these churches and why he's writing to, to Timothy and to Titus and to Philemon and all these other individuals that he writes to as well. So there is no perfect church. There are no perfect Christians. Charles Spurgeon said uh, really well at one point that if, if you're looking for a perfect church and you find it, it stops being perfect the minute you walk in the door, right? That's, that's true. That's true. We, we have to recognize that. There, and so listen, I, I say all this to go, there's going to be lots of things we look at in this. Some things we may be doing fairly well. Some things we may need to find correction in as well and, and continue to grow and move towards faithfulness to Jesus. So um, 
yeah, that's, that's something that we just need to recognize because right out of the gate, I mean, as soon as Paul's done introducing himself and talking to Timothy uh, in the first two verses, he just jumps right into problems. Like there are pro- serious problems in this church and, and we need to just recognize that that's a reality. That's a reality for all, all of us in all churches. Um, maybe not the exact same problems, but we all have problems. So, all right, uh, let's go ahead. Let's jump in. Uh, uh, verse 1 and 2, Paul is writing a letter. So this is written in the format of a letter in the ancient Roman world. Uh, it's written a little differently than we write letters today. Normally, we start with... Uh, addressing the person we're writing to, and then we sign off with our name after the body of the letter. Uh, Letters were structured slightly differently in the ancient world. It would start with the person writing the letter, introducing themselves, and then addressing the person that they're writing to or to the group of people they're writing to right after that. And that's what we see here. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord and, and Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, so Paul, uh, let's just make a couple mentions here. Paul is obviously writing the letter. Okay, that's not hard to see. It's the first word in the, in the book. Um, but, but how he describes himself is important. He calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. He called himself an apostle because that was the the position that Jesus gave him to serve in. An apostle uh, in the first century was basically an ambassador for Jesus, somebody who would have the authority to speak on Jesus's behalf. And there were not very many apostles, okay? There were 12, all right? So um, Paul, you know, eventually Judas uh, ends his own life after the crucifixion of Christ, and I think, you know, they, they had another guy in there, but eventually Paul gets into this mix too as an apostle. And he's called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, uh, to be Christ's authority to help establish churches in Gentile nations and cities. And so Paul is speaking here. This is why it's important. When he calls himself an apostle, he's not just writing about his own opinion. He's speaking on behalf of Jesus. And that's why we, 2,000 years later, still listen to these words and receive them as authority uh, in our own lives because they're not from Paul. Paul's the instrument that God's using to write them down. And the situation that he's writing to, to Timothy, is a unique situation. But nonetheless, it carries the same authority and weight and importance as if Jesus himself was speaking these words. So we need to hear that. Okay, we should listen to what we're going to see because Jesus is speaking through these words by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he, then, then notice this. He also says he's an apostle by command of God. By command of God. He did not assign himself this, this position. I know today uh, there are people who claim to be apostles. And guess what? Every single time they just say that they are. That's not how this works. Okay, it's not how it works. Jesus called Paul. We have historical record of it in the book of Acts. Um, We know that Jesus is the one who brought Paul into this position. It's not just something that we get to claim ourselves. Um, And so we need to be very careful and and wary of people who are saying, I'm an apostle 
Uh, and so therefore you should listen to everything I say. That's, that's a dangerous game. We got to listen to Paul because he's an apostle by command of God. And we have absolute evidence of that reality. Okay, now verse two, he says to Timothy. So this is who he's writing to. He's writing to this, Tim, this man named Timothy, who he describes here as my, tr- my true child in the faith. Now, we're going to learn a little bit more about Timothy and Paul uh, as we work through these letters, particularly in 2 Timothy. But because it's going to be months and months until we get there, um, let, me, let me just give you a quick snapshot of Timothy uh, as a man and who he was. We, we know that he was, uh, Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy, that he was raised by his uh, mother and grandmother. Now, Paul never mentions his dad. So there, there's some possibility that his dad may have died um, in, when Timothy was a young child or even before he was born. It's possible. Uh, it's, a lot of people think that Timothy's dad was alive, but just either was not a believer or had just abandoned the family and walked away. We don't know the whole story, but we know that Timothy was raised by a very faithful and, and Jesus-loving mother and grandmother. And, and what's amazing in this, this little statement that Paul makes about Timothy, my true child in the faith, is that Paul, he's not his father, he's not his adopted father, but he's, he's in, a, in a genuine way his, his father figure. And, and Paul has obviously stepped into a relationship with Timothy and, and filled a void in Timothy's life where Timothy did not have a godly man in his life until Paul came in and, and became essentially a father to him. Right? And so Timothy's a younger guy. Paul's much older than he is. But, but there's this father-son dynamic between the two. And, and here's what I want to say. Two things. One, moms and grandmas, you have a huge role to play in your children and grandchildren's lives. Timothy is a believer, was a believer. He's with the Lord now, right? But he was a believer because his mother and grandmother were faithful to Jesus. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy, that he was, he was brought into the faith because of their faith. And they, they loved him and brought him to Christ. Don't sell yourself short on that. And I know that a lot of you have different stories and a lot of you have different backgrounds and, and hurts and all those things. I just want to encourage you, if you're a mom, if you're a grandma, and, and maybe, you're, maybe you're not in a situation where you've got a godly guy at home, Jesus can work in and through you. And he wants to do that. He wants to use you in the role he's called you to. That's important. The second thing I just want to make mention here quickly is that um, there's a real value and vitality for older men to come along younger men as fathers. We see, we have an epidemic in our country of fatherlessness. And it's, it's right here on our doorstep. We see it all the time, Right? And, and what an amazing opportunity for the church and godly guys in the church to step alongside younger men and, and help them and raise them in, in Jesus, right? Not as their true fathers, not as, their re, not as adopted fathers, but just as godly brothers and father figures in, in Christ. That is, that's what one of the things we're seeing here. And I think we're going to get more of that. We're going to see more of that as we work through these letters, Um, But just right out of the gate, the way that he speaks to Timothy is is so tender and gracious and kind. And he says, Timothy, you're my true child in the faith. 
that there's there's some real in, endearment there. There's some there's serious love there, and that's something to be commended and something for us to try to emulate if we can. All right. Then he says this: grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So here he's just laying out. This is very typical of Paul. He starts almost every letter he writes with something along these lines. Grace, mercy, peace. He, he's just articulating uh, the gospel here. And we're going we're gonna to talk some more about that as we get through this. Um, so we won't touch on it too much right now. We'll, we'll come back to these things uh, towards the end. But, but let's look at verse 3. Um, so verse 3, this is where we start to see right out of the gate there are problems. And Paul doesn't spend a lot of time like with a lot of fluff and, and he just dives right into it. He says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. All right, so why? So Paul's writing this letter to this guy named Timothy who, who he sees as a son in the faith, a, a child in the faith. This, man he, this, this young man he loves and he's, he's trying to write this letter to call him to, to big things and help equip him to do those things. But we see right in verse three what Timothy is, uh, is called to do in this church, in this situation, and, and Paul's writing this letter, obviously, to help him uh, along in that, in that effort as he is not there presently in, in body. And so here's what he says. He says, I, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to stay in Ephesus. All right, so Paul leaves. Um, the time frame on this is a little bit fuzzy. Pe- people have some different ideas on when this letter was written. Uh, most people I've, I came across think that Paul wrote this letter uh, after, kind of after the events of the book of Acts because there's no uh, evidence of Paul being in Macedonia, uh, going to Macedonia from Ephesus in Acts. So this was probably another trip between, sometime between the book of Acts ending and Paul's, uh, Paul's imprisonment um, in Rome. But either way, uh, he's off in Macedonia and he had Timothy stay behind in the church in Ephesus for a reason, right? Look at these two words, so that. So here's why you're staying. Here's, here's why I have you there. So that you may charge or command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So it's not too hard to piece together what's happened here. The church in Ephesus has leaders that have gone off the rails. They've gone off the rails. They've, they've left the gospel behind for a different doctrine. Now, many of your translations will say a false doctrine. A lot of, lot of translations choose to translate this word different as false. And that's not wrong. That's, I mean, it's true that a different doctrine is a false doctrine. But what Paul's saying here is, is that they are preaching a doctrine that is strange. Um, not strange as in weird necessarily, although I think that we, we do get there. We'll see that. Uh, the, the doctrine that they believe does get them to weird places, but 
nonetheless, um, it's, it's the word different has to do with basically something that's unheard of or other than what was passed down from the apostles. So they're, they're preaching something that isn't the, the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. They're preaching a different doctrine. They're preaching a different message. And they, at some point in time, these elders, just uh, at least some of them, certain ones of them, not, maybe not the whole, but some of them have gotten off the rails. And it's Timothy's job to put it right. That's, that's intimidating, right? I'm sure it was intimidating. I, I don't think Timothy was even the oldest guy in this church. He didn't have any real authority aside from Paul giving him authority to do this job, but here he is. He's been called to do this. He's been called to this task of helping the church get away from crazy teaching, different teaching, and actually bring this back to the gospel. So let's talk about this uh, as we get into verse 4. Because verse 4, I think, lays out what is, what is resulted in the church from this other doctrine, okay? This other teaching that they were engaged in. It says, nor to devote themselves to myths. I can't say that word very well. Myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So they're teaching a different doctrine. They've, lo- they've left the gospel, and the result of them teaching something else, whatever that else is, has led them to crazy things, to these myths and these genealogies and these speculations and, and all of this craziness that comes as a result of leaving behind the true gospel. So he, he's calling on Timothy to say, listen, here's the problem. When people abandon the true gospel of Jesus Christ, God, craziness always takes its place. Something insane always steps in to fill that void, that vacuum. And, and, it's, and it's dangerous and damaging to the church. It's destructive to the church. When the church veers away from the simple message of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners and risen again. That, when that happens, insanity starts to take over. Craziness starts to get into its place. And in this case, it was people believing these myths and these, I don't know what endless genealogies even means. I know there's a lot of genealogies in the Old Testament. And so they were probably reading these and like trying to, you know, do this weird like, Okay, what does all this mean kind of stuff? Like what's, all, what's underneath the clear teaching here? That's what happens, right? People get, when they, when they lose sight of Jesus, they get into crazy town. They just do. They do. We see it actually. We see it in our own, in our own churches. It, it may play out differently today than it did then, but it's all the same. It's all rooted in the same issue. When we miss Jesus, we get into weird things, like, I'll give you an example. End times madness is one of my favorite ones. Now, Jesus is coming back. We all agree with that. Every Christian believes that. But to spend your entire life reading the signs, like you're trying to read the tea leaves and go, oh, look, at this happened. There was an earthquake over here, and then this war broke out, and then all of a sudden, Jesus is coming back next Tuesday. Like, is he? Really? You're crazy, Right? 
like you're crazy. And you know you're crazy, but nobody's brave enough to tell you you're crazy. These things make Jesus look foolish. His followers do more harm than than good when they're embracing crazy things. We just got to stop. Jesus is coming back when he's good and ready, so you can just stop. Let him do it. Let him do his thing. You don't need to freak out. You don't need to worry about what everything means. You know what it means? We live in a crazy, broken, sinful world. Jesus is going to fix it someday, and we just got to ride it out till that happens. Okay? That's what we do. Just ride it out. You'll die eventually, and all will be good. Right? That's, that's, how, that's how it works. That's how it's always worked. But that happens. We, we can, this leads into a lot of other things too, but uh, you know, political madness, cultural madness, biblical application madness. When we lose the gospel, we, we start to veer into weird and unusual and damaging things. We just do. And we do so much harm to people in the process. So here's the thing. Jesus loves his church. He loves his people. And he doesn't want the crazy town to take over so that people are hurt in the wake. He loves it too much. And that's where we actually see it start to come out. In verse 5, look at verse 5. He says, the aim of our charge, the aim of putting a stop to this nonsense, the goal of this is what? It's love. Paul is saying that by confronting these people that were in this church, these certain persons who had led the church away from the true gospel, by, by confronting them and putting a stop to what they're doing, this is actually loving. And I bet those guys wouldn't think that it's loving, but it is loving because as a whole, the church is going to be better for it. The aim of the goal is the aim of the goal of our charge here is love, he says. And that love issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The love that this that Timothy should have for the church and for the for all these people, including the crazy people, right? Confronting the crazy people is important too, because they need Jesus as much as everybody else. And so the whole goal here is love that's coming from a pure heart, a heart that's been changed by Jesus, right? Not a, not a perfect, sinless heart that we, that we can't manufacture, but a changed, washed, cleaned heart through the gospel that then issues uh, out of that to a good conscience. So being able to stand before God and men and go, you know what, I did the right thing even if it wasn't popular. And a sincere faith, a sincere trust in Jesus. These are the things that, that uh, empower us to love, that motivate us to love, and we will ultimately see happen as we get back to the Gospels, to the Gospel, rather. And so that's when the Gospel is rightly preached and when the, when the message of the, of the Gospel is rightly practiced in the church, then the result of that is love that permeates a congregation. That's the goal. That's the aim. It's to steer the ship back to Jesus because that's where love is found. All right, look at verse six. It says certain persons, so here he calls them out again, by swerving from these, 
have wandered away into vain discussions. So these certain persons have swerved from these. What are these? Well, sincere faith, clear conscience, right? pure heart, ultimately love. They've swerved from these. Picture just taking your steering wheel and just swerving. And where, you, where do you end up? You end up in the ditch. That's where they are. They've, they've swerved from these and have wandered away into what he says is vain discussions. Vain means meaningless, emptiness. Just there's, it's, there's nothing, there's no substance. It's just meaningless discussion. And so because they've left the center of the gospel and they've swerved off of it, they are now talking about things that just don't matter and, and they're just wasting all their time speculating and trying, again, reading the tea leaves and all the other things that they're trying to do instead of just loving people and caring for them and preaching Jesus. He says in verse 7 that these people desiring to be teachers of the law or the, old, the, the scriptures, right, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which the scriptures make confident assertions. Or, excuse me, they, I think they actually refers to, I'm sorry, to the people preaching them, to make confident assertions. Okay, so here, Paul is saying that these people, uh, he's going pretty far here. He's being pretty, uh, we would say it's offensive, right? He's saying harsh things about these people. But he's saying that they are actually just ignorant people. They're ignorant. They don't have a clue what they're talking about. They, they don't have any idea, though they want to be preachers of the word, the scriptures, the law, right? He, they want to teach the Bible, but they have no idea what the Bible is even talking about. And so what they're talking about is just meaningless craziness and they've just lost the room, right? They, this church has, has started to go into just weird directions. And so ultimately, Timothy is now called here to shut this down, to, to bring these guys back into the fold in a repentant way so that they can experience the love of Jesus in a meaningful way, but they've got to stop being the preachers. Basically, that's the fundamental issue here. Timothy's been called to take the reins on this church and to lead it into health. Okay, so that's where we're going to stop today. Um, but we got to talk about what this means. Those are the verses we're looking at. These first seven verses. But what is this, how does this help us? What is this doing for us? Because obviously, I, think, I don't think anyone here would say that Springbrook Church has gone into crazy town. Um, I hope not. Uh, I, I hope, I really hope not. I don't think so. We, we're very intentional to, to be about Jesus here. And uh, it doesn't mean that we're not po- capable of going into crazy town, but we have, to, we have to guard our hearts on all this, right? So if fundamentally, if the issue in front of us, and again, let's frame it in this way. The, the f- whole reason Paul's writing this letter is to help the church be faithful to Jesus. So in light of this, what does this help us to see as we long to be a faithful church? Well, here's what it means. At, at the foundation level, 
Paul's dealing with the most foundational issue. Because if you don't get to the foundational issues and repair the foundation, then there's no hope for anything else to be repaired. And if you're just going to repair the symptoms and not really get to the cause, to the root of the issue, then you're just patching things up and it's not going to really work. So Paul, right out of the gate, gets to the heart of what it means to be a faithful church. And that is, it means we're a gospel-centered church. We're not centered on these weird, crazy genealogies and speculations, but we are founded, centered, grounded, rooted in who Jesus is and what he's done. And if a church starts to veer off of that, we're going to start seeing the ramifications of that. And that's a problem. The, the reason, I believe, the reason why so many churches are as dysfunctional as they are, and we have our own dysfunction, not judging anybody, okay? But I think that every time there's dysfunction in a church, it's because we've lost the center. We've somehow veered into secondary and tertiary issues rather than staying focused on the central issue of Christ and his word. So let's, let me just unpack for a few minutes here what the gospel is so that we're really clear, so that as a congregation we know what we're aiming for. And then as we know, if we know what we're aiming for, then we can find ways to find ourselves back to it. Okay. Here's how we would define the gospel. This is not a straight out of the Bible definition. This is us piecing together the things we read in the scripture to put together a definition. But here's a gospel. Uh, here's the definition of the gospel. It is the good news. Good news. That's what the word gospel means. It's, gospel is an English word that's translated from a Greek word that means good news. Okay? So the gospel is good news that God saves sinners through the perfect life atoning death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. In our place, he lived for us, he died for us, he rose for us in our place to bring us into a right relationship with God. Let's unpack that for a minute. It's good news. It's good news. That's what the gospel is. If, if is. If anything's being preached that's not good news, it's not the gospel. If you're just getting beat over the head and just guilted and shamed and there's no path out from that, right? There needs to be times where we are, where we're guilted or shamed in some sense, right? To, to the, to, I want to be careful here, but to the degree that we see our need for Christ and then a pathway to get to Christ, right? We've got to recognize we're sinners, we're sinners and we're broken people and we're messed up and we need a savior, right? So yes, the, the bad news flows out of, or the good news flows out of bad news. That's true. But the gospel always gets us to the good news that God loves and saves sinners. You're not hopeless. You're not hopeless. You, do, you have hope in your life. It is that God saves you. And he saves you through Jesus, he saves you because he sent Jesus into the world to live on your behalf a perfect life, to die in your place, to take your sins upon himself, and then to rise from the dead so that you can be united with him eternally in him. 
And all of that effort that God put in to save you is what brings us into peace and relationship with God. That's the gospel. And we actually see it in the text that we just looked at. We see it in verse 2. In, in Paul's little introduction to this letter, he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace are essentially Paul's shorthand for what the gospel is. They hit all the aspects of the gospel. Grace is the undeserved goodness that God gives to us even though we don't deserve it. Okay, so grace is God giving us good that we don't deserve. Mercy is sort of the same coin, but on the other side, where God holds back bad, even though we deserve bad, right? So mercy and grace are very similar, but they're, they have slightly different nuance, slightly different angles. Grace is God giving us what's good, even if we don't deserve it, especially because we don't deserve it. And mercy is God holding back the, the judgment and wrath and anger that, he, that we rightly deserve, <laughs> but he doesn't give that to us. He holds back his anger and he gives us good. So grace and mercy are the two sides of this, this gracious coin that God has developed for us. And then this third word, peace, is the ultimate outcome of grace and mercy coming to our lives, which is that Jesus takes upon himself all of God's anger and takes upon himself all of our sin all of our bad, and he takes all of God's anger, and then the result of that is we trust in him is we have peace with God. It's the, re- it's the relational restoration of our lives that flows from grace and mercy. If that is not the fundamental central issue of the church, we've lost, we've lost everything. And I, don't, and I don't say that to be Uh, hyperbolic. I mean that genuinely. If the church loses the gospel, what's the point? We've lost it all. We, we, now listen, this this doesn't mean that the preaching of of the the sermon or the pastor is always going to just be this message in this way every single time. But what it does mean is that whatever we're talking about, we're looking at that through the lens of the finished work of Christ. The Bible does teach that there are things that we should do and we sh- how we should live. We're going to get to that actually next Sunday. We're going to start to see those things start to become unpacked for us. There is expectation on God's people to live in light of the gospel, but that's, we can't, again, we can't put cart in front of the horse. We've got to see that the gospel is what drives our love for Jesus. And so it has to be preached through that lens. Okay, so... One more thing. We've seen what the gospel is. It's the good news that God saves sinners through Jesus. And that brings us into a right relationship with God. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is who we need to see. But what does it mean then to to be a gospel-centered church then? So what does it mean for us to be as a church, as a gathered group of people, what does it mean to be centered on this good news? I've got a, I came across a definition by a guy named Joe Thorne. He wrote a book and he's a pastor and um, whatever, but he, he, I think he has a really good uh, definition here and I'm going to read it for you. 
He says a gospel-centered church is a church that is about Jesus above everything else. It's good, right? Sounds a little obvious, he says, and it should it, that should sound obvious. Like, if that sounds revolutionary to you, I'm so glad you're here because <laughs> you you need to know that that's not revolutionary. That's just that's obvious. But when we talk about striving to be and maintaining gospel centrality as a church, we are recognizing our tendency to focus on many other things, often good and important things, instead of Jesus. So he says there that we have a tendency, and we all do, we have a tendency to kind of like that, Oh, squirrel over here. You know, you just turn your attention away from Jesus because something gets your attention. Sometimes those things are good things. But if they're not Jesus, then, then we've, we're, we're getting off center. So then here's how he concludes it. I love this. He says there's really only two options for the local church. We will either be gospel-centered or issue-driven. You see the difference there? That's, I think that is really helpful because you're either about Jesus or you're about everything else that's going on. And if we're issue driven and every sermon has to be about addressing this particular crazy thing that's happening and it's getting us all worked up and we're all mad about it and whatever, like I really think fundamentally we've, we've missed the point. The Bible speaks to issues and we need to get to those as the Bible speaks to those. But to be driven by issues is to miss Jesus. It is. So that you're either all about Jesus or you're all about stuff that's happening outside of, outside of your control. Personally, I think that issue-driven churches are um, a dime a dozen. You can find them all over. But, but there's just something that's chaotic there. You can kind of feel it when you get on the ground. You kind of go, there's no, like, there's no good news here. All this is is we're just griping about the things we can't control instead of looking at the only one who truly can make a difference in the world. And so that's where, as Springbrook Church, we, we are firmly committed to be about Jesus over everything else. It's not that everything else doesn't have a place or doesn't matter, but those are not the center. They're they're outside the center, and the center informs those things that are outside of it. It's it's how we view those things. It's how how we understand the things that are happening. We understand them through the lens of Jesus in the gospel. And so in this in this series, we're going to work through this. And we're going to see a lot of things that Paul is going to address in this church in Ephesus. And there's a lot of things we need to hear and are going to need to address in our own lives. But man, I, I just think I love how this letter starts. It just starts so beautifully with, yes, a problem, right? There's no perfect churches. There's no perfect leaders. There's no perfect anything except Jesus, right? There's problems in this church. And Paul gets right to the issue but as we identify the problem and we start to move forward into, into Christ, that's where we start to see real, genuine growth and change and beauty happen. All right, let me pray for us. Father, um, we just want to come before you humbly now. Um, as we've seen 
the issues that are happening in, in this letter and, and look at our own hearts in light of it. I, I just pray that you would make clear to us the ways in which we've veered from the gospel as individual Christians and as a church. I pray that you would bring to light those things so that we can truly find mercy and grace and peace to help us and to get us to you. I pray, God, that you would give us the insight that we need to to move forward in these things. And we we pray all this uh, in your name and for your glory. Amen.